Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wondered what happened to Lance Von Erich? Find out in his book, Lance by Chance, Wrestling as a Von Erich. You'll read stories about Chris Adams, Ric Flair, and Billy Jack Haynes. And of course, the Von Erich family themselves. Get your book today on Amazon. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast. I'm your host, Vinny Berry, and my guest today is... Author, historian, Scott Peel. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you, Benny? Hey, I'm doing good. Hey, thank you for coming on. I've been seeing you around. I've, you know, I've come across you on the internet or, you know, I'll see you, uh, in pictures. You pop up. Your name comes yeah. up from time to time. So, uh, you know, sure. you are a wrestling author, historian. Uh, golly, how long have you been doing this, Scott? Well, I got it. Uh, started uh, watching pro wrestling in 1968, and by 1972, I was uh, actually 1971, I guess. I was going to the matches and taking pictures and sending into magazines, and uh, they they would publish my stories along with the pictures. And uh, in '74, I moved up to Na- I moved up to Nashville, and I to go to college. And I really I only went to the matches four or five times, I guess, that first year. And made a trip to Huntsville with one of the guys, a guy na- named Don Green. And, uh, we went to Huntsville today at a big show with Andre the Giant there. Don was on the card. He was Mr. Wrestling. Uh, he was working under a hood as Mr. Wrestling. And while I was there, uh, I guess Nick Goulis, the promoter, or his son George had seen me around quite a bit and, uh, sent Don out to talk to me and, or sent Don out to get me and he, Don came out, he says, Nick Goulis wants to see you in the back. Well, of course, I, every time I go to the matches, I was always around ringside and shooting pictures right up on the ring apron and leaning into the ropes and I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble. He's going to tell me to get my butt out away from the ring and, but, uh, he asked, uh, Nick asked me to come work for him. So man, you talk about being excited. It's like a dream come true. I really never even thought about approaching, uh, Nick or any any promoter actually to to work for the office, uh, but, uh, but that's how I got my start. And uh, I shot uh, pictures and did uh, the arena programs for Nick from 1974 till 1980. And Nick sold his business at that point to Jerry Jarrett, and they already had their program. Uh, they used the same uh, program they used in Memphis with a different insert uh, with a Nashville card. So. So they didn't need my stuff. So I just got out and said, I'm through with wrestling, probably never have anything to do with it again. And, of course, if you've ever been in the wrestling business, you learn never say never because you're some probably somewhere along the line you'll get pulled back in. 
And uh, in 1993, then a guy put on a convention in Nashville, a guy named Don Rowlett, and he called me. I was one of the early users of, of a computer, a personal computer, and I don't know, I to this day even remember how Don found out about me, he, but he was promoting this show at the Roadway Inn in Nashville, and he was bringing in a lot of the old-timers, Frankie Kane, Frank Morrell, uh, a lot of the guys from Memphis, and uh, having a big, uh, sort of like the fan fest they have now. But it's before anybody else really did anything like that. And But anyway, Don called me out of the blue. I didn't know Don. I didn't know who he was. But he, he said somebody had given him my my name and said I had a computer and could do uh, layouts and stuff. But anyway, he asked me to come work uh, if I'd do his flyers and uh, publicity for his convention. And that's what I ended up doing. And in the process, I came up with the eye for doing, idea for doing the Whatever Happened To magazine. I got talking with a lot of the guys there and, uh, the, you know, the wrestlers who, who I had known for, you know, decades, most of them. And, uh, that's when I started publishing. Right, tell me a little bit about that, that magazine and, and what did it consist of? What was the, you know, what was the idea for that? Well, the whole idea was uh, a lot of the old, uh, well, I call them old timers. I'm an old timer now, but, uh, a lot of the legends, they, uh, I, you know, I really didn't stay in touch with a lot of them. I still had contact uh, numbers for them, and uh, every once in a while somebody would call me. And uh, so I thought, what happened was Dick Steinborn was one of the guys, an old-time pro wrestler. He was one of the guys that Don Rowlett brought in for the convention. And Don talk, called me one day. He says, you don't believe what happened. I said, what? He says, well, I'm trying to get Dick Steinborn to come to, the, to our convention. He says, and Dick asked me, whatever happened to Scott Teal? And Don told him, he, he says, well, I just talked to Scott to, you know, help me with the publicity. But through that question that, that, that Dick asked of Don, that's where I got the idea from our Whatever Happened To magazine. You know, whatever happened to all the old-time wrestlers? Because, you know, once these guys got out of the business, they just disappeared, especially the older ones who, you know, who didn't weren't able to stay and work in Memphis or any other territory. So I thought it would be a cool idea to have a newsletter uh, which was a 12-page newsletter at, at first, uh, that where I call the wrestlers, find out what they, you know, what they've been doing since they got out of the business some 12, 15 years before. And I also, it was sort of a cool thing at the time. Uh, I included the wrestlers' uh, t- uh, address and phone number uh, because, and I always got permission. But I asked the, the wrestlers, I said, would you mind me including your n- number and address? And, case because a lot of these fans would like to write to you and uh, just tell you what what you meant meant to them back in the day and these were the wrestlers you would not believe they loved it because they they got so many letters i mean i got a a guy this one guy he gets letters to this day oh wow wrestling wrestling fans that that saw saw his address in my newsletter and uh so so it was a really cool thing they really it really sort of gave them a second uh lease on wrestling life because they'd been pretty much forgotten by everyone so right. uh for the you know for the most part so it made them feel good that somebody remembered them and because these fans would call and they'd tell them how much they enjoyed watching them wrestle and what they meant to them and uh so, so it, was, it was a sort of neat thing but each issue the first three or four issues i was really kayfabe because i grew up you don't expose the business any to anybody in fact i didn't even smarten my wife up for the first couple of years i knew her and of course, that was common back then. You know, you didn't tell your kids, you didn't tell your your parents, you didn't talk to your wife or anything. And I didn't. But uh, in each issue, I just had the name and address, 
phone number, and a short biography. Just it may have been a one page, half a page, maybe sometimes two pages, on on their, a little bit on their career, sort of an overview, and then what they'd been doing after they got out of the business and sort of disappeared. So, um, but after about five issues, some of the guys, you know, that when I talked to them, they started saying, "Man, you need to start telling the stories and telling it like it was." Uh, so many of these people now are the business is being exposed everywhere. Just tell the stories, and he said, "Don't worry about exposing the business." So I started it. I was sort of leery at first about doing it, but I'm telling you, it just opened up a whole new world for me and for for everybody for that matter, because it really was one of the first publications that uh, had really in-depth shoot interviews with the guys. You know, later mm-hmm. on, yet guys did uh, videotapes and shoot interviews on videotapes, but. Uh, whatever happened to was pretty much a groundbreaker at that time. Very interesting stuff. Hey, and also, too, you have written several books. You have uh, worked with a lot of wrestling people doing books. What are what are a couple of the books that, that maybe stand out in your mind of some wrestlers that you've worked on with? Oh, my goodness. That's a, that's a hard question. I mean, I got I, – I, Checked out. I think it's like 64 books I've published uh, and worked on, and uh, it's hard to say of any of them. I mean, Oli stands out because it was my first one, and I had so much fun working with Oli. Um, he's so bombastic about everything, you know. He just he doesn't mind speaking his mind, and uh, we had some great conversations. J.J. Uh, Dillon, that that was really cool because. Oli's, we got, we, uh, I don't know, you know, Oli's book was really sort of groundbreaking too at the time. It was one of the earlier ones that, uh, that a wrestler actually spoke out about the business. And while we were at, uh, FanFest in Charlotte selling the book, uh, Oli and I had a table and, uh, JJ Dillon walked up and said, well, asked me if I'd like to write his book. And of course I agreed. And before the weekend was over, I, Jody Hamilton was talking to me and then Ivan Koloff. So, those were my next three books, and uh, you talk about being privileged uh, just to work with guys like talent like that. Those guys were top-notch names in their day. And oh yeah! What, a, what an honor it was, to, uh, you know, to be asked uh, personally by them to to work on their book, and uh, I just so I you know the, some of those earlier ones stand out. Lou Thez's book, of course, somebody else published Lou's book before I did. But it went out of print, and I felt like it needed to be still in print. And I had done three interviews with Lou. J. Michael Kenyon had done an interview with Lou that had never been never been published. And uh, so I thought, you know, it'd be interesting just put those interviews in the book. And I also did a short interview with Charlie Thez, uh, Lou Thez's wife, and talked about uh, you know a little bit about Lou's life after the he got out of wrestling, and then uh, uh, what he thought about the the book after it had originally been published, and so and that that was fun doing that. Um, I'm curious, what what did Lou Fez do after after the business? I know he did a you know a guest referee here and there, but that he he was a, a larger than life figure in his day. You know that's too funny. I can't can't even think of that right now. What what he whether he did do anything as far as like an occupation of any kind. But he did well in life, you know. They they made it on through, and uh, of course, Lou and I we went back to 1970. I guess I met Lou for the first time in 1975 in Nashville, and uh, that was really a cool thing too. Here's Lou Thez at the time, you know, like a 
uh, multi-time world heavyweight champion in NBA, and I grew up in Florida, and I had seen his name bandied about by Gordon Soley, talk about one of the greatest, probably the greatest at the time, uh, world heavyweight champion ever. And I grew up watching the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. And when Lou came to work for Nick Goulas in Tennessee here in 75, either 75 or 76, uh, I met him in the dressing room that night, and he invited me to his apartment. Uh, next day he says, come on out there and you can take some pictures and maybe we can do a story or something. So, man, you talk about a, how exciting exciting that was. I mean, here's Lou Fez, a guy that, you know, people looked up to. I mean, he was like a god in pro wrestling. And here he invites me over to, to his place to talk and just sit and have a, have lunch with him. And, uh, Lou, that's something that I guess one of the things that really stands out is, is somebody as important as Lou Fez was, just, he treated me just like I was anybody else. You know, he treated me like I was a, a close friend. You know, he was, he was not uppity about, you know, his, uh, station in life at all. Right, right. Yeah, I had the opportunity to talk to Harley Race before he passed away and he was so giving of his time and he was just so friendly and easy to talk to and he gave me a number to call the next day to uh have uh someone email me a picture and then Harley answered the phone he talked to me for another hour and a half wow that's great <laughs> you know and he and he was just uh you know and I said well man I'm glad I called and talked to you today he goes Hey buddy, I'm glad you I'm glad you called too. You know, so he loves talking <laughs> about wrestling just as much as as we do. You know, that go yeah, that goes back to my whatever happened to those guys. Absolutely love getting letters from the fans, getting phone calls from the fans because they had all this adulation all their life. You know, people were always clamoring over them, wanting to talk to them, and you know, know get to get to know them and whatever. You know, and and so. Later in life, you know, Harley and all these guys, they didn't have all that anymore. And so when somebody showed some interest in them, they just ate it up because it was like it was giving them a chance to just sort of relive a little bit of what it was like when they were so well known. Right, right. And talk to me a little bit more about what uh, Crowbar Press does. You know, you guys, you you know, of course, you write and you you print books and, you know, but I saw some uh old-timey posters and programs on there. Tell me a little bit about that and and what the interest is in some of that stuff is. Yeah, the old-time posters I used to love because I, I remember when I went to Tallahassee, the first time I saw a poster, uh, wrestling poster, I went to Florida State University for their uh, summer music camp. I played trumpet in the band, and they had two six-week uh, sessions during the summer, so I went to those. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to go to the uh, armory in Tallahassee and uh see see the matches one night and when i left the armory i saw these posters in these uh gas station windows for uh they were for i think i had one tallahassee but most of them were for like quincy florida pensacola uh places like that and so the next day i was out going gas station to gas station getting those posters and i just thought those were the coolest things but they had them in in every territory had had uh, cardboard posters they put on t- telephone poles they put them in gas station windows store windows and uh fans a lot of fans used to you know go around they'd go in the store after the matches were over or the next day and say hey that match was last night uh, that's you know that thing has gone past already can i have that poster and that's why we have the posters we do today because people had the foresight to save them and uh 
But I love the poster so much that I thought, you know, it would be so cool to create uh, sort of replicas. You know, they're not exact replicas. They aren't, you know, just perfect, but they're pretty close. The, the ones I create are pretty close to what they look like uh, in the different territories. Uh, now, if I uh, if, if some some territories didn't have posters, and if they didn't, then I what I'd do a lot of times I'd use the newspaper ad that they used, and I'd sort of base the poster off what the newspaper ads look like. But I've got over 150 uh, posters now, and uh, I haven't created any in quite a while. I just did create a bunch of the first 20 for WrestleMania, but I don't have them on the website yet. But uh, I am I, I want to get back and start doing some of those old more of those like some more of the Starcades and probably some more Memphis posters and uh, Madison Square Garden and generally what I try to do is do create posters based on some of the more famous wrestling shows you know like the Shea Stadium card with Bruno and Stan right. Hansen you know things like that the, the cards that people are really really do you know really really strong really remember Ric Flair against Ronnie Garvin in Detroit Ric Flair winning the world heavyweight title in Dusty Rhodes in Kansas City you know it's just another way for us to uh preserve the history of the wrestling business yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and I and I have a couple replica posters myself I actually have a a poster of like a like a original program and uh two tickets from like 1958 or 50 and it's it's behind I have it in the glass frame because it's battered and tattered and you know but that being an original piece it's one of my my most pride possessions uh but I I love the replica posters too yes that's right because they take you back in time and when you every time you look at them you think oh man I've got one replica I did for Braden the Bradenton Armory uh, in Bradenton, Florida, where I grew up, and it was the very first card that I ever attended live. And uh, well, I take that back; it wasn't the first I attended, but it was the first one I attended in Bradenton. I guess the one in Tallahassee was the first. But uh, it's sort of cool because I look up and uh, I got it here on my wall. It says Thunderbolt Patterson versus Mr. Saito, and I'll never forget sitting in those stands in that little National Guard army. And that place was small. I mean, it was like there wasn't two feet. I don't even remember them having ringside seats. I think it was just uh, general admission uh, grandstands, you know, on both sides of the ring or three sides of the ring. And, man, you were close to that ring, too. You know, what What do you think it is about professional wrestling for you? I mean, you know, some people uh, love it like we do, and then some people uh, can't get into it. But what do you think it is for the people that do get into it? Well, the first card I saw, I was uh, – having dinner with a girl I had just started dating about, I guess I was in about ninth, 10th grade. And they, we were sitting eating table uh, at the table, eating supper on Sunday afternoon. And all of a sudden everybody gets up. I mean, everybody, but the girl and me, everybody gets up and takes off. And I said, where's everybody going? And she says, wrestling's on. And it was one o'clock on Sunday afternoon, and everybody in that family, there's probably six of them, everybody in that family ran for the living room, turned on the TV, and sat down to watch it. <laughs> I had never even watched wrestling at all. I didn't know anything about it. But I, that day is what sold I will sit there and watch it with them. And that day, that's what sold me on pro wrestling. I got so hooked. And to me, it wasn't so much the 
I mean, it was. I loved the angles that they did. They had a guy named Great Malenko, and man, he was, people hated him so much. Uh, Great Malenko, Joe Scarpa, who later became Chief J. Strongbow. Uh, the Gladiator, a guy named Ricky Hunter. Uh, the, uh, Hans Mortier, a great big guy from the Netherlands. He was supposed to be a German. Uh, but that absolutely captivated me that day. And from then on, I never missed a show. In fact, in and where I lived in Florida, they had it on twice. Uh, twice they had it on Saturday and Sunday. And most of the time, I watched it both times. And uh, but what interested me more than I guess the actual product or the wrestling. I love the wrestling and I love the product. But there was a lot of people. I started after a few weeks of watching it. I was telling people at school, my friends at school. That I asked them if they watched it, and, and a couple of people start saying, "Well, you know, all that stuff's fake." Well, you know, I sort of had a feeling, but I didn't know for sure at that time. You know, they were so believable back then. But after about a month, after I'd heard that so many times, what really drew me into the wrestling business was not the product, not the wrestling. Like I said, even though I love both of them, but it was the fact that in my mind, I kept thinking. Who tells these guys who's going to win? How do they decide who's going to win, who's going to lose? I want to know what go how all this is arranged. I mean, some reason that was my 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 drive that really pushed me into wrestling. I wanted to know how it all worked. You know, how do they how do they do what they do? How do they get away with what they get away with? How do they convince people that what they're doing is you know is, is legitimate? You know, mm-hmm. and that's what really really. Uh, interested me, and that's what eventually led me to writing books, because I went to the library. I looked up old microfilm newspapers, and I looked up Tampa Wrestling 1922, Tampa Wrestling 1956. I started looking up all these old cards. I was so interested in the history of the wrestling business, and then I found a book called Fall Guys, which I have reprinted since, and uh man, you talk about that absolutely exposed the business in so many ways. And that, to me, was the most fascinating book. And that's probably what led me to really want to to uh, write, uh, you know, like, like I was. The first, you know, when I was uh, in Nashville, everything I wrote was kayfabe. You know, I didn't write anything exposing the business. But later on, you know, when I started my Whatever Happened To, that's really what led me to start uh, opening up with people and explaining exactly how the business worked. Right, right. You know, and today I talk to people, old timers and and up and coming wrestlers, and it, it's funny. You know, you just you just talk about the way that it is, and it's it's like I I understand there was a time that you wouldn't talk about certain things, or you know, oh, it's a work, or it's this, or oh, you know, nobody even knew the word. Yeah, there, there yeah, there's a lot of. There, are, there, there is a different language, right? There's like, yes, you know, because for words, for a, for a long time, I, I didn't know what the word, I didn't know what kayfabe was, had no clue, and that I'd see it and I'd see it, but I still didn't know what it meant. Someone had to explain it to me, and even when it when they did, it, it took time to to sink in. But you know, today it's like the, the cat's already out of the bag, you know. It's, oh yeah, but 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 there's still. You know the pageantry and the and the stories and the the larger than life characters and I and I I think that's the thing that's always drew drew me in. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. So Scott, how can 
fans find you on social media or on the internet and if they're interested in any of your work, what where can they find you? Just go to crowbarpress.com and that's C R O W B A R P R E S S, like a crowbar, like that's like a wrestler that's really stiff and it really can hurt you and then press like a body press. Crowbarpress.com and they can also find me on Facebook. Uh, type in Crowbar Press Archives, and that's uh, the place where I post a lot. Of, well, I don't want so much anymore. I used to, but uh, I, now and then I do. I post uh, articles and old uh, newspaper ads and just interesting things about pro wrestling. All right. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for giving me your time. Sure. Thank you for having mm-hmm. me on. I, I enjoyed this. I appreciate you to ask me. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to do it again because we only touched – we didn't even – Touch the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. We got a lot. (laughs) There's a lot more we could talk about. Just let me know. I'd be glad to talk anytime. Thank you very much, Scott. You have a great day. You're listening to the WrestleVille Podcast, where wrestling lives. Have you ever wondered what happened to Lance Von Erich? Find out in his book, Lance by Chance, Wrestling as a Von Erich. You'll read stories about Chris Adams, Ric Flair, and Billy Jack Haynes. And of course, the Von Erich family themselves. Get your book today on Amazon.